The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Welcome back to another episode of the Money MBA Podcast. I'm John Katsmita, and today joining me is Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Now, this is going to be Brent's second time on the show, and it's going to be my first time having a repeat guest, so I'm excited to have him break new ground for me. Now, it seems quite fitting to have Brent on, certainly as one of the first repeat guests, since it's been quite a while since we first spoke. Um, he's most known for his dollar milkshake theory, which at this point, if you're not familiar with, then you probably have no idea who Brent is. Um, I encourage you to, to listen to our first interview where we really, the, the primary focus was diving into the dollar milkshake theory that he has. Um, and I think it's an important part of where this conversation goes. Um, we kind of do a flyby on what the dollar milkshake theory is, really just more as a, as a precursor or refresher. And then we quickly move on to things that are going on in today's market and some of the narratives and, and, and dogmas that are driving the com conversation, you know, primarily that being one of inflation. Um, the meme that's oh so popular right now is the money printer go burr. And all the things that you're kind of seeing happen as knock on effects of that narrative. But is that really what's happening? Is the um, Federal Reserve really printing money and, and creating inflation and driving up asset prices as a result of this quantitative or supportive monetary policy. And, and that's really where this conversation goes. And, and trust me, Brent is somebody who's very uh, active in both other podcasts and Twitter, et cetera. Um, but this is a, a unique conversation. We definitely go into topics and in greater detail than he has anywhere else. I think you're gonna get a lot out of this. And I think it's important to perhaps, if nothing else, establish another timestamp. It's been over a year since Brent was on the podcast. If you go back and look at that first interview, I think we established a foundation of what his thesis is. And it's good now to see where we've come along that path and where he sees um, his ideas going, some of the things that he's kind of changed and repositioned himself for. And I think when you get some of that insight, you'll find it valuable so that you can kind of do some of the same readjusting and preparing for what he sees coming ahead. So I hope you enjoy, it was a pleasure for me. And one other thing to mention, we decided to get creative and test new technology. During this conversation, I actually was live streaming it using the new Clubhouse app. And the Clubhouse app is something that everybody seems to be jumping on. So why not test the boundaries? So if there's ever a point where it feels like maybe I'm fiddling around with something, it's because I'm trying to balance the conversation between two applications the um, interview that we're, you know, Brett and I are doing on camera, as well as managing different microphones on the Clubhouse app. And I do at the end of the, of the, the uh, towards the end of the podcast, um, open it up to some Q&A. So hopefully you find that interesting and valuable. And if you like that, let me know because I'm actually looking forward to trying to test that out on future podcasts so we can get all of you guys involved. And it's not just me peppering these guys with questions, you can get engaged with them 
directly as well. So hopefully you enjoy uh, this repeat or 2.0 conversation with none other than Brent Johnson. Brent Johnson, welcome back to the Money MBA podcast. And um, this is going to be a, a, my first repeat guest. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so this is the Brent 2.0. And what we're actually going to try to do during this interview is test our technological capabilities as well as um, just the tech in general. I'd say at this point, if you want to unmute yourself on Clubhouse. So we joined in. Done. All right. So we're both now on Clubhouse, so people can follow along with the conversation. And um, so, yeah, we'll jump right into it. Um, again, welcome back to the podcast. We're now recording. We're also here live on Clubhouse, and those who are following along will have the opportunity to hopefully join in later and ask some questions. So, Brent, you know, not to leave anybody in the dust, um, and certainly not to torture yourself by repeating something you've repeated a thousand times, but um, to avoid me screwing it up, can you give a, a quick two minute, not introduction as to who you are, because I think people can just figure that out on their own, but let's give a, give us a recap of the dollar milkshake, because I think it's going to lead us into where we go in this, in this discussion. Sure, sure. So the dollar milkshake theory is something that I've kind of used as a framework for how I see the next, I don't know, call it two to four years playing out. And, you know, and I say two to four years because I don't know exactly the timing of how this is going to play out. I think that this is going to play out before it's all said and done. But I'm the first to admit that I don't have a crystal ball that gives me you know, firm dates on you know, when it starts and when it ends. But essentially, what it refers to is the fact that for several reasons, um, you know, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. And for several reasons, based on hegemonic power, the design of the monetary system, um, the, the dollar debt in the world, um, a number of different factors, I believe, will lead um, to the dollar rising over the next two or three years, despite all the money printing, despite the money printer go burr meme, despite the stimulus, despite the widely held expectations in the market that the dollar is going to fall, I actually think it's going to rise. And I think as it, I don't know if it's going to rise in, 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 in answer to the crises that develop or if it's going to rise and cause as a result, caused the crises, but I, I think we're headed towards a currency crisis. And I think we're headed towards a currency crisis because of all the debt in the world. And the fact is, is that it's not just the United States who has a lot of debt, but the rest of the world has a lot of debt. And not only does the rest of the world have a lot of debt, they have a lot of debt denominated in US dollars. And as the dollar gets stronger, that puts incredible pressure on the rest of the world. It puts pressure on the United States as well but it puts in more pressure on the rest of the world. And what I think that will lead to happening is these crises, you know, flaring up around the world, kind of like a set of dominoes, one leading to another. And I think that will push global liquidity and global capital into the U.S. dollar, not because people like the dollars, but because they have to have them to operate. And then I think that those dollars will find their way into the United States markets. And ultimately, I think it will push U.S. markets and asset prices much higher. Now, in the very short term, I think we're due for a pullback. Um, I don't think we'll get back as low as we were in March of last year, but a 15, 20% pullback is certainly not uh, impossible. But ultimately, what I think happens over the next couple of years is the dollar goes a lot higher, U.S. asset prices go a lot higher, the rest of the world uh, 
um, you know, has a number of uh, crises and the, it'll eventually rotate and, and, and domino back into the United States. But I think the United States and the dollar fall last in this progression of dominoes. So the milkshake theory comes from the, the theory that we're all the whole world is going to print this liquidity. They're going to do stimulus and we're going to suck up that capital. The U.S. is going to suck up that capital um, and, and flow into the United States market. So that's kind of a big picture summary of, of, of the theory. And, and I don't want it to be overlooked. The reason why you call it the dollar milkshake theory. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, it's, you've got a lot of people that gravitate towards you and some of these macro ideas, because you do a very good job of explaining them. And so as part of this theory or this, this thesis, you've incorporated three very unique um, movies to kind of tell the story. And again, we've, you've had the dollar milkshake conversation a hundred times in the yep. first interview, we, we went through it, but you know, there's an infamous scene in the movie, there will be blood where he's in his, um, Elijah's face telling him, you know, we're going to, I drink your milkshake and it's a chilling scene, but it really puts things in perspective in terms of how your overall macro view is that the U S of course it's got its problems, but so does everybody else. And the fact that the dollar you know, is the reserve currency and acts as this straw sucking up the liquidity from, from all these other markets because of its reserve currency status is really at the, at the core of, of, of the narrative and of the story, right? right? You know, why is it called yeah. the dollar milkshake theory? And that's why. Yeah. And so, you know, to, just to give a little bit more detail on it, you know, I kind of started talking about this a couple of years ago now. Um, and again, you know, uh, I, this is how I see it playing out. I, I, I wish I had the exact timing on the way it does. But at the time, the U.S. had higher interest rates than the rest of the world. And, you know, our higher, in, you know, the rest of the world is injecting liquidity. And I said, we were sucking it up. Going back to the movie you referenced, you know, this Daniel Plainview was this oil, oil man. And he was trying to get, you know, his neighbor across the fence to sell him his oil. And he wouldn't do it. And he said, well, that's fine. I'll just stick, you know, the straw down on my side of the fence and I'll, dr I'll, I'll drink your milkshake. And, you know, at the time, the U.S. Was, was, uh, had higher rates and we were sucking that capital in the United States. Now, subsequently, over the last, call it 12 to 18 months, we've dropped rates dramatically. But the reality is, is our rates are still higher than the rest of the world. Um, and then, you know, I had a number of people tell me, well, now that they've dropped rates, the, 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 um, the milkshake theory no longer is valid. And the point I've always made back is, you know, the higher interest rates was always only one of the reasons that I thought capital would flow to the United States. Now, at the time, it was perhaps maybe the most important reason, but it was never the only reason. And in fact, part of the whole thesis is that the U.S. as the global reserve currency and the U.S. Treasury as the representative of the global reserve currency should have the lowest rate. That's the risk-free rate. In any, you know, in any financial modeling you do, you use the risk-free rate and then you put an investment premium on top of it and you discount those cash flows back to it. But the fact is, is that even though the U.S. is the risk-free rate, the rate is higher than a number of treasuries and a number of sovereign nations around the world. A number of places around the world are even negative rates. And part of my thesis is that over the next couple of years, that will flip. I think we will go back to where the U.S. is, again, the lowest yielding sovereign. And I think other interest rates will rise around the world. And perhaps even U.S. rates will rise, but I think they will rise quicker around the world, not because things are getting better 
um, and they're able to raise rates because of growth, but because of counterparty concerns. You know, investors will want to get paid more to take on that Italian treasury or that French treasury or that Australian treasury or the Canadian treasury or the Brazilian treasury. And as a result, I do think that we'll get into a period where the U.S. will, those, those foreign sovereign rates will rise higher than the U.S. sovereign rates. And so my theory is not predicated on us having to have the highest rates. But if we do have the highest rates, it certainly helps in the short term. So um, I wouldn't say it's a, I wouldn't say it's a pushback, but one of the things that's you know kind of the argument ultimately is is you know to summarize what you're saying, the U.S. in a lot of ways is the cleanest, dirty shirt, right? And that's right. And it has the hegemony on on you know fiat money as a reserve currency. It's obviously a very bad actor in all of this. Like its monetary policy is not sound by any means. But, you know, and you said this a lot too, when you look around the world, everyone's, you know, more or less playing the same playbook. And everybody is printing, debasing, devaluing, trying to keep their economy afloat. It's a little bit of currency wars. It's a little bit of coordinated, you know, debasement. Is there a a point in time where, you would um, start to lose faith in the narrative of this cult the dollar milkshake theory where, you know, just being the not so bad actor in a room of bad actors is enough for it to, to hold its ground. Yeah. So, so I think there's a couple things here. The first thing I'd say is um, the thesis could not have been more correct. Call it 15 months ago. It would be between, From the beginning of 2020 to the end of March of 2020, everything that we said would play out was playing out in spades. Now, we couldn't have been more wrong from April through December. Um, You know, I did not. We thought that the dollar would pull back a little bit in Q2 after it had that really hard run in Q1. We did not think it would pull back as far as it did, but it did. You know, and you can't deny that. So for the people who say you were wrong. I'll accept that. I got the, you know, we were early, if that's how you want to describe it. Um, and so then people will ask me, you know, at what price would you say um, that the theory is dead? And the point I would say is it's not a matter of price. Um, you know, I, I've said many times, part of the reason I think this will take longer to play out than many people is because I have higher faith in the central bank's ability to keep the plates spinning than many other people. Now, I ultimately think they will fail but I still think that they have bullets left in their guns, so to speak, whereas some people say they're on their, you know, they're on, they're on their last few legs. Um, and so it wouldn't be so much a price level that would cause me to, to say uh, that the theory is invalid. It would be why the price went there. So let me, let me tell you what I mean. And, and the reason I say that, let me, let me step back a little bit, is because things can change very, very quickly. Let's rewind almost a year ago exactly. A year ago, uh, toward middle to end of February of 2020, the dollar was around 96 or 97, so somewhere in that level. Um, the first 10 days or the first nine days of March, it went from 97 to 94. So it had a hard pullback. The euro rallied, the dollar fell to, to, one, uh, to like 94 or something like that on March 9th. 10 days later, it was at 103 and the world was on its knees begging for dollars. That's how fast it can change. Because the whole, when there's a more, if the global economy stops functioning, it's basically a global margin call on the dollar. 
and you just saw it shoot up really fast. And until they completely design the monetary system and figure out a way to deal with all the dollar debt in the world, that phenomenon or that potential is always there. Okay, so now let's bring it back to now. Now they, they, they've gotten the, I, I thought they'd get the dollar, you know, after this big run it had in March, I thought maybe it would pull back to the 95 or 96 level and then make a move higher. Well, it didn't, it broke 95 and now it sits at 90, let's call it. Um, I can't rule out the fact that it might go to 85. I don't think it will. I think we made a bottom um, last uh, last month in early January at like 88, 90 or something like that. Uh, I think that was probably the, the short-term bottom, but maybe it goes a little lower. I, I don't know. But, but, but the only thing that would cause me to really change the possibility for the thesis to play out is if the dollar went a lot lower and it went lower because of a few things. If it went lower and it went lower because they redesigned the monetary system to where the dollar was no longer the global reserve currency, then maybe I would throw the thesis out. If it went lower because several countries got together and said, you know what, we don't want the global reserve currency, but we're not going to use the dollar anymore. And we are now going to transact using whatever other currency they come up with. Then maybe I would change my mind. If uh, some other military power sunk five of our battleships overnight and we could no longer project military strength around the world, you know, or some natural disaster wiped out the Pentagon or, or the military infrastructure and we could no longer project military strength around the world, then may, and the dollar fell as a result, then maybe I would, I would change my mind. But just a matter of price moving would not necessarily make me change my mind. It might, it might. I can't sit here today and say, you know, at 86, the thesis is invalid because X, Y, Z. I just kind of have to wait and see why it goes there. It's interesting that you mentioned price because sometimes when you, when you get that granular, I even admit for me, it's, it's, it's starts to get a little tough to follow because it's, it becomes more of a trade than this yeah. macro viewpoint that you take positions around. Yeah. But what I do think is interesting about the conversation of price is, and I think it starts to paint in how backwards a lot of us have it. And, and one of the reasons I appreciate your, the, the content and value you add to the space is because it's, it's one that, that pushes us to question the narrative. And, and the reason I, I think this is a good transition based on price is because you're looking at price now on the kind of the lower end, we'll say, of the, of the recent trend. And yeah. for a lot of people that are you know, in agreement with you in some things, but disagreement in others, in particular as how this plays out, but you're, you're also, again, part of the dollar milkshake theory is, is the Highlander story, and, and eventually yeah. the dollar does get taken out. Uh, the point I'm trying to make here is a lot of people are, you know, will point to the weakness in the dollar as the signal or the sign that this is it, things are yeah. finally hitting the fan, um, yeah. you know, the dollar is done, when really the point you're making, and there's so many bits to the point, but it, it's not the weakness in the dollar that's going to, to be the dollar's demise. It's this uncontrollable strength where the plate spinners and central banks can't get it under control because of the debt in the system, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so basically, I guess that's, it's, it's, can you elaborate on that a little yeah. bit? Because yeah. Yeah. is the death and it's, it's yeah. really the opposite in, in terms of your yeah. point. Yeah, so, so the first thing I'd say too, you, you made a bunch of good points there and, and, and it, it helps to talk about this in kind of a relaxed setting and, and clarify a few points because it's it's hard sometimes when you do an interview or a presentation to really spend a lot of time, you know, without 
having to continue on through the presentation because you have, you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes to get through it. Um, but, but the point I would make is, first of all, I don't know if I'm right. And I've said this a hundred times. I think I'm right. I have high conviction I'm right, but there's no guarantees that I'm right. And I, because I, because there's no guarantees and because I'm always trying to think of where could I be wrong? How could I get turned upside down? How could I get wiped out, so to speak? I would never suggest that anybody put 100% of their portfolio on this thesis, right? You, and, you know, when I manage portfolios, I have this thesis in mind and we have a fund, which is a, which is a specific piece of the overall portfolio that is playing this thesis. And the other parts of the portfolio are somewhat exposed to the thesis, but they will also be okay if the thesis is wrong. Um, and so because we couldn't time it perfectly, we said, let's figure out a strategy. People can allocate to the strategy. This is going to be a three, four-year trade. We don't know when in that three or four years it's going to play out. If we get the timing completely wrong, maybe we lose the, the four or 5% of our portfolio that's allocated to this. If we're wrong, that means the other 95% of the portfolio is doing very well. Uh, if we get the timing wrong and it hurts us early, well, we've still got two or three years left for it to play out. And it's a fundamental strategy based on the design of the monetary system. It's not a technical trade. It's not just a you know a momentum trade. If we were just technical traders, we would have been out at 95, 96, 95 level. When it broke that level, we would have been out. But this isn't a technical trade. So when people say, you know, you know, it broke down a long time ago, well, it did. I agree. Last June, in the short term, the dollar broke down, it, or in July, I guess it broke like the 95 level. And once it broke 95, we had a pretty good idea that it was going to 90, right? And now it's kind of been at 90, kind of the 89 to 91 level for three or four months. Um, sentiment got completely wiped out. Um, the, you know, the, the sentiment on the dollar had never been lower. A month ago, it had never been lower. The positioning on the dollar has never been more negative. Um, and so, you know, and the positioning on the reflation trade had never been higher. So, you know, when we, when we look at technicals now, we're sitting at very strong support at 89. Oh, we've got sentiment that's wiped out. All the fundamental reasons are still there. Um, so we feel like on the fundamental case is still very good. Now, to your point about, um, you know, is the dollar weakness the sign that it's all over? I would argue that it's not. <laughs> See, the, on the one hand, people will say they have no faith in central banks, that gold's going up and the dollar's going to zero. Well, if you think the central banks have everything under control, that's the dollar going lower. The central banks controlling the price of the dollar and managing it lower over time so that the world can grow and the rest of the world can kind of get out of underneath this dollar debt pressure, that's the central banks winning, right? And so if you think that the central, if you have faith in the central banks and you think that they can manage this process, well then, you know, then maybe you think the dollar's gonna go lower. But if you think the central banks are going to fail, that's not the dollar going lower. The central banks failing is the getting a, is the dollar getting away from them and running to 110, 115, 130. That's the, that's the Fed failing. Um, and so I would argue that, um, to your point, the Fed has been a bad actor. Or the United States has been a bad actor. I completely agree with those points. When, when people say um, the Fed is running horrible monetary policy or they're spinning like drunken sailors and Da 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 da. Hundred percent agree. <laughs> I won't argue that point at all. 
I would just say that so is everybody else. And if you held everybody else to the same standard that you're holding the Fed, um, I think you would come up with, with a different uh, solution. Um, and the other thing that I think people have, have trouble with is, is uh, or not trouble with, is, you know, I've said that we'll have the dollar and gold rise together at some point. And they say, well, that can't happen. They're the antithesis of each other. And the example I use is, let's say that you line up 10 fiat currencies against the wall, and you put silver and gold up there with them. Okay, now you've got to choose which ones you want. Okay, you pick silver and gold first, and you put them in their portfolio. Now they're gone. You can no longer choose gold and silver. Now, if you want to have 100% of your portfolio in gold and silver, well, then you just put them in there and you're done. You don't even have to watch the markets anymore because your portfolio is allocated. There's nothing else to do. You own those two. But if you want to have something else in your portfolio, okay, fine. Choose gold and silver, maybe Bitcoin. You've got them in your portfolio. Now you've got the nine fiat, the 10 fiat currencies. Which of the fiat currencies are you going to pick? You have to pick one of them. Well, you know, if you want to pick the euro, go for it. If you want to pick the yen, go for it. I'll pick the dollar 900 times out of 100 with, with a fiat lineup. And it's, it's not because I like the dollar. It's not because I think that we have the best and the most moral and the, you know, the, 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 you know, the smartest people. I just think the game is rigged in our favor. And so if the game is rigged, I'm going to bet on the most probable outcome. Now, if, if you don't want to do that, I get it. That's fine. I'm just saying that you haven't, you, right now, the way the markets are positioned, everybody hates the dollar. The sentiment on the dollar is low. The position has never been more negative dollar. Yet the dollar is like the LeBron James of the lineup. You know, you line up 10 NBA players and you're going to pick LeBron James last. It's just, you know, you have the opportunity to pick LeBron James and you have the odds stacked in your favor as far as the, you know, the betting line. It's just, it's an amazing opportunity. Now, it's not guaranteed to win, but it's just those opportunities just don't present themselves that often. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that, that's kind of how I see it. Well, it, it definitely tees me up to try to unpack a lot of things. I, you know, the LeBron James analogy is funny because I would, I would almost lean more towards a Tom Brady analogy. Because I, love, I love Tom. Let's do that. He's been, he's been, you know, at the top for so long that yeah. you're just expecting his eventual demise and he just keeps showing up and winning Super Bowls. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's yeah. more indicative of, of what the dollar is doing. But I want to take a step back. One thing in particular is this idea of you got to pick one. And I, I think people struggle with this. And, and a lot of the, you know, sound money guys struggle with this. And, you know, it's, it, I don't want to go deep down that rabbit hole, but, you know, I had a great conversation with Mike Green where he, he kind of presented some really fresh ideas on, on Bitcoin and, and understanding money in general and, and defining money as something that, you use to basically cancel out debt. And everyone wants to talk about the debt in the system and it's unsustainable and, and yada, yada, yada. But it, if you were going to pay off the debt, you know, you got to look at what the majority of the debt is denominated in, but more so than, than just that, literally, if we were just going to simplify and say, if you were going to pick one, you're like, no, 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 I want gold. And so, no, 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 stop. If you're going to pick one, I would be very interested, and I don't know if this is like a survey that's actually done. You know, they do all this, who's, you know, net long, net short. And as mm -hmm. that's another point I want to bring up, and you know, what you're talking about here is you have overall, 
you have extreme positioning. And anytime you have extreme positioning, I think you said in a tweet recently, like, yeah, maybe this time the majority will get it right. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost always an indicator that, you, you know, the opposite's going to happen. The majority, the herd usually gets it wrong in markets. But um, again, without rambling too much about this, I think the question is, you know, is, are, are people being honest with themselves and proposing that question, if you had to choose one, which would it be? And I guess maybe said differently, if it wasn't the dollar, what's going to be the new reserve currency? Because it's not going to be gold, at least not immediately. Right, right, right. And that doesn't mean that gold won't go up. Gold could go to $5,000 or ten, whatever. Pick your number. I don't care. I'm a huge gold bull, you know, long term. Um, you know, whether it goes up or down tomorrow, I don't know. But, you know, I think as this unfolds, gold is going to be much higher. But I do not think it's going to be the next global reserve currency. I do not think that we're going to go back to a gold standard. Uh, but again, if you if you don't like the dollar, that's fine. But then you, you know, if you've already got your gold, again, like I said, if, if you have your portfolio and you have to allocate it, if you choose to have a 100% gold, silver, and Bitcoin portfolio, then you're done. There's no more work to be done. Your portfolio is allocated. Just go to the beach, right? But if you want to have another part of your portfolio other than gold, silver, and Bitcoin, it's the next most important decision is which currency, because the currency is the the currency markets are the biggest markets in the world, and they drive everything. And if you get the current, you can get the asset wrong, but if you get the currency wrong, you can still lose money. So getting the currency right is very important. Um, and so, you know, if, you, if you've got an argument that another fiat currency is better than the dollar, I'm, I'm happy to listen to it. Um, I just can't figure out which it is. Again, it's to, to, your, to, your, to your point, um, you know, Tom Brady's good because even though he's won seven Super Bowls, there's so many people that just hate him. Right? They're just so sick of him. He just wins all the time. He's too perfect, da 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 You know, and that, that's a lot like the dollar. It's a lot like the U.S., you know. The U.S. has been the top dog for a long time. We're sick of them. They think they're so cool. They think they're so smart. They can tell everybody else what to do. And we just have to fall in line. And, you know, I hate the dollar. Well, just because you hate the dollar doesn't mean it's not good compared to all the others. Just because you hate Tom Brady, you can't argue with his success. And, and the, the point I would make is this is like the opportunity to bet on Tom Brady to win the Super Bowl. Plus, they're giving you 28 points. Right. <laughs> so the, the line is you get 28 points to start. And you get Tom Brady. You know, I'll take that bet. <laughs> yeah, as much as I like Mahomes, I don't think I would. I would take yeah. that the other side of that bet. Yeah. Right. And speaking of bet, I think this is also super important. And I've I've learned a lot about optionality, convexity, asymmetry um, from talking to guys like Mike and Jason yeah. Buck. And I think this is another one that people don't get, partly because I think everything gets oversimplified, but you're not buying the dollar and, and taking it on a linear ride, right? You know, right. The positions you're in, I don't need you to explain your positioning, right. but I just want, I want there to be an understanding here that you're looking for that asymmetric opportunity. And if, That's right. If Mahomes pulls it out of his rear end and ends up winning the Super Bowl against Tom Brady, whoever Mahomes is, the, the Euro, you know, yep. whatever you want it to be, it's not going to be the end of the world for you because you're positioning everything else for those right. opposite or alternative outcomes yeah. and the dollar is really an asymmetric opportunity that you're, you're considering. 
Yeah. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, you know, why would you just buy dollars? Even if it goes up from 90 to 110, that's what, 20, 25%. It's not that big of a deal, right? You can get that in a day in Bitcoin, right? So, so and, and, and yeah, of course, you know, and that's the point. So I'm not just, the, the idea is not to, when I say buy dollars, it's just, it's kind of a expression more than anything. Um, you know, we're not just buying dollars and holding all the dollars. What we're trying, what we're doing is we're looking around the world and we're trying to figure out if and when the dollar gets stronger, what will be the knock-on effects and what will be, and then we find either a security or a company or some industry that we think will have huge moves or huge implications if the dollar rises. You know, I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because uh, the, it was a big win for us a year ago is in the fall of 2019 and early 2020, the Bank of Canada was the last on a quote unquote holdout of the major central banks to cut rates. And they were even still talking somewhat hawkish. You know, they were talking about how they would, you know, we didn't think we would have to cut rates. Everything would be fine. The economy is accelerating. And we just thought it was completely ridiculous. And we thought that as the dollar got stronger, it would put enormous pressure on Canada uh, because Canada has a primarily a, a real estate driven and a commodity driven market. And if we thought the dollar got stronger, that would put funding pressure on Canada and they would have to cut rates. So, and we thought that they would have to cut rates aggressively. So what we did is we went and we bought out of the money call options on short term Canadian rates. So basically, which means the, well, on, these, on these bonds. And so basically when they cut rates, these bonds would rise very quickly. So we not only bought call options, which have inherent leverage in them, but we bought out of the money call options, which have inherent, which have even more leverage in them. And so then when Canada did have to cut aggressively last spring, the value of these call options just exploded. Um, and so that's an example of how we are looking at the knock-on effects of the dollar getting stronger. Now we have similar type exposure to plays in um, Hong Kong and in um, Australia and in Brazil and in Turkey and in Italy um, and Saudi Arabia. So we're trying, and they're not all in the same industry. We have uh, exposure across, you know, credit, equities, um, real estate. Um, you know, we're always, it, and sometimes just uh, um, sovereign sovereign rates. You know, we don't, we're, we're not just going out and buying call options on the dollar. We're trying to do it in a smart and diversified uh, manner. So, you know, we, we, do, we have geo, geographic diversification, we have political uh, diversification, we have security diversification, and we have asset class diversification. We're not gonna get them all right, they're not all gonna play out, uh, but if one or two of them, of the big themes, or if the dollar gets stronger and even one or two of these asymmetric trades play out, um, you can still do really well. It's, it's kind of, in a little bit, it's not the same, but you could kind of think of it like a venture capital fund. You know, venture capital funds go out and they buy, you know, shares in these startup, 20, 25 or 30 startup companies. And you never hear about the 23 that go bankrupt. You hear about the seven that succeed and, you know, three or four of them do really well and two or three of them become Facebook and, you know, Google and they make huge returns. And it's kind of the same thing. We'll, we, we will probably end up losing on, on some of our bets, but I think we'll make money and make a lot of money on a few of them. And, you know, if the dollar does what we think it does, uh, we can make a lot of money just because of the asymmetry of the trades. So it's, um, 
it's interesting because one of the things that I've kind of focused on in terms of this podcast and the people I like talking to are those that I can learn from, but especially people who are always in the pursuit of knowledge and learning themselves. And one of the things that kills me sometimes when, when I'm just kind of observing whether it's Twitter or just, just the financial debate of various kinds at any point is how entrenched people get in their, in their own dogma. And so one of the things I appreciate about you, and I'm not trying to be a cheerleader here, it's just that you are always open. You push back your antagonist. You have fun while you're doing it, but yeah. you, you're certainly open to having your mind changed. And, you know, in a recent, um, we'll call it virtual debate you are in, you know, the other person that you are kind of going back and forth with is probably one of the most dogmatic out there and admit it on this conversation that for the past decade, he's been dead wrong, but tranchly also admitted that I am just digging my heels in and I'm eventually going to be proven right. You will see. And I think it's very dangerous when, you know, a narrative is, is, is kind of driving your entire viewpoint to the point where you shut everything out because, you know, as a fiduciary, I don't think anybody's responsibility is to tell a cute story. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's to protect, preserve, and grow your client's wealth. And so with that in mind, you know, although I'm, I'm patting you on the back and saying, you know, you're, you're open-minded and willing to, to change your view, what if the plate spinners, the central bankers continue to, to win? And, and you yeah. just see the dollar trend yeah. sideways, which is something Raul mentioned as, yeah. as a possibility. How would how would you start to shift your investment focus and, and where would you think you would start to, to look? Well, I think so right now, the way we have assets allocated are we're heavily allocated to U.S. equities. Um, we have hedges on them, but we're there. Um, if, if equities continue to go up, we'll continue to make money. Um, we have short term U.S. fixed income. Um, we're not we don't know. We don't own any international or very I should say very little international. And and no emerging markets, and then we have you know precious metals, and we have our our dollar play, right? Um, if this kind of just goes, let's say the dollar goes sideways for a while, uh, for several years even, and we do actually start to see um, sustained, let's call it not just inflation, but sustained inflation. We should talk about that as well, um, as far as narrative. If we see sustained inflationary pressures, we would probably have to reallocate away, not, a, not completely away from U.S., big blue chip U.S., but we would probably have to start dipping our toes in some of the small caps. Um, we'd probably have to start dipping our toes into more commodities. We'd probably have to start dipping our toes into emerging markets. Uh, we haven't done that yet because we haven't need to, because despite those other markets doing well, the U.S. markets have still done well also. Um, but it, you know, to your point, it, it is possible that I'm wrong. It is possible that plate spinners keep this going for 10 years and the dollar just goes sideways, in which case perhaps we don't make as much money as we otherwise could, uh, but, we, but I think we'll still make money and we'll still be okay. And, and the reason I have the portfolios designed like that is because I could be wrong. There, there's no guarantee that this dollar milkshake is going to play out. Um, and the other thing I would say with regard to you know, a narrative or a thesis, I don't have a problem with the people who held gold for 10 years. Um, I held gold for 10 years. Um, where I had the problem was when I would see people in the gold world try to convince, you know, 
retired people or people moving towards retirement to put 50, 60, 70% of their portfolio in not just gold, but gold mining stocks. I didn't think that that was the right thing to do. And I didn't think it was the right thing to do in, you know, in the depths of those years to, 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 to keep saying, you know, I didn't see, I didn't ever see anybody say, you know what, we got it wrong. Right. Um, you know, and that, that really bothered me. It really bothered me. I think you have to be able to say that you're wrong. Right. And, and the reality is, is, you know, the, the, the whole, my dollar thesis came about because I, I was a huge gold bull and I still am a huge gold bull, but you know, it was in the 2000, between 2014 and 2016, when gold was kind of in the, you know, I, I don't even remember now, maybe it was in the 12 to 1400 range. And I was trying to figure out why it wasn't higher. And rather than just saying, you know, it's going to go to $5,000 tomorrow, I like actually did the work to figure out why it wasn't going to $5,000 tomorrow. And that's when I discovered um, the whole dollar, the whole dollar story. And, and, and again, I don't even really like the way the dollar works. I just understand how it does work. That's, an, that's, a, that's another important thing that comes back to narrative. Um, you don't have to necessarily like what you're invested in, or I shouldn't say it that way. There, there's a difference between investing in what you want to see happen and what you actually think is going to happen. If, if I was just investing my own money and I wanted to try to change the world, so to speak, then perhaps you put it all into the thing that you believe and the way you think it should be. That's what an entrepreneur, they, they, they see something missing, they go out, and they, you know, they try to change the world and provide this new thing. But my job, that's not really my job. My job is to pr protect and grow other people's money. They might not have the exact same beliefs that I have, but they have hired me to grow their portfolio. So I don't have the luxury of just going out and investing what I'd like to see do well. I have to go out and find what is actually going to do well, whether I personally like it or not. And I think that I think that's an important distinction to make. Um, and, uh, and I think it, that, that's, that's probably the biggest mistake that I used to make. I would invest in stuff that I, I wanted to see do well, rather than what I would actually like to see do well. In other, let's go back to the whole Tom Brady. Even if I hated Tom Brady and just thought he was just the biggest jerk, if he's won seven Super Bowls, he's in another one and they're giving me 28 points to bet on him. That's, you have to put some money there, right? If you're betting other people's, if you're managing other people's capital, that's a bet that you probably should make. Um, um, even though I may personally not like the idea of him winning another one. That's good because it brings together a, a, a couple a couple points we've touched on. Um, dogma being a big one, the idea that you know, and, and you kind of you know finger quoted it and, and emphasized it a little bit. The idea that, that we're going to have sustained inflation because now. Yeah. Now the playbook has changed, right? We we don't yep. just have the um, central bank doing QE, which you did a great conversation with Stephen Van Meter, and you talk about the financial system and a lot of things that you kind of uncovered during 2014 to 2016, where QE is you know deflationary. It's actually removing assets from the system and suppressing interest rates. We won't get into that here. It's a great conversation. I've actually watched the video probably three times because there's so many little nuggets to take away from it. But the thing that can, can maybe alter that and, and make some of the, you know, that 
QE is deflationary dogma and the idea that yeah. inflationary inflation has typically been transitory. All of that can yeah. change your potentially now because we're entering a world of MMT and more fiscal stimulus than just QE style stimulus is monetary stimulus. Um, and if you get into an environment where the central banks are able to create and execute successfully a central bank digital currency, now they can control directly when these types of things hit the consumer's pocket. You know, in the digital world, there's so many things that you can control and modify. Maybe that yeah. stimulus or that money when it hits somebody's you know, digital wallet has a ticking clock on it. If you don't spend it in 30 days, it disappears. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. Now we're entering another paradigm where, again, you got to question the dogma, <laughs> excuse me, the dogma and, and some of these thesis and ideas because the rules more than ever are constantly changing. So do you want to kind of speak to, to some yeah. of this paradigm shift? Yeah. Yeah. So l- let's talk about narrative and let's talk and let, let's talk, let's kind of tie that into paradigm shift. So, you know, the, the, the popular meme right now, and there's no, there, listen, there is no debate that this is the popular meme is that the money printer go burr and therefore the dollar loses value and asset prices rise. I mean, I can give you point after point after point that, that proves that this is the most favored narrative right now. Now, whether it actually ends up being true or not, we'll have to see. But that, as it stands right now, that is the narrative. Um, and so, and, the, and they use that to justify the dollar going lower. And that's fine. But then let's take a step back from the narrative a little bit and let's just look at history and see whether that is actually true. And the fact is, is that from 2008 until 2000, call it 19, um, the Fed expanded their balance sheet uh, dramatically. I think it like by three or four times, maybe five times. I think it started at like 800 billion. And now it's like, yeah, it's almost almost yeah, six or seven times. Um, and they did a lot of fiscal stimulus along the way. And then over the last year, um, they've expanded it like crazy again. Um, they've done huge amounts of QE. They've done huge stimulus. And yet the dollar is, what is it? It, started, it was like at 77 or 78 in 2008. And 12 years later, despite all of the QEs, all the, you know, the operation twist, you know, the, the Fed repo, dollars, you know, 15 or 20% higher than it was. Well, if all of that money printing, quote unquote, is supposed to be inflationary and it's supposed to reduce the value of the dollar, why is the dollar 15 or 20% higher than it was when they started all these programs? You know, if, if all of these programs are supposed to be so inflationary, why is it that Japan's been doing it for 20 years, 25 years, and still are struggling to get sustained inflation? So I get the thesis. And I get that it is actually showing up currently, but over a sustained period of time, the evidence just isn't there that it actually works that way. Um, but there's another part of this, and that is that if, at least in the short term, if the central banks and the monetary authorities and the politicians can convince you that it's inflationary, and then you change your behavior because you want to get ahead of the inflationary pressures that you see coming and you actually go out and start spending or you buy those that stock or whatever it is in order to get ahead of it and everybody starts to do it with you, then that can actually become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
In other words, the signaling that QE is inflationary is almost more important, or I would argue more important than the actual QE operations themselves. And I can give you a very good, very concrete example of this. Uh, let's fast forward, or let's rewind a year ago, uh, not quite a year ago, 11 months ago, um, credit, high yield, and um, um, you know the, the, the credit markets in the United States was seizing up. Junk bonds were crashing. And as part of their package, the Fed came out and said, we're going to set up these new facilities where we're actually going to buy corporate credit. And the very next day, high yield started to rally. Um, you know, some of the, the higher grade corporates started to rally. And, you know, two months later, in the middle of May, <laughs> Jeff Goondlock comes out and says, hey, you remember how the Fed said they were going to buy those high yield bonds and those corporate bonds? Yeah, well, they actually haven't. But the price had run up anyway. And everybody's like, well, what do you mean they haven't? And he says, they haven't. And then the Fed was like, oh, crap. Yeah, I guess we should probably go do that. And so then they go and they, for a couple of months, they did start buying them. But the point is, is that because everybody thought the Fed was in there buying them, everybody else bought them too. And it pushed the price higher. It took the pressure off of the system and credit the, the, the spreads uh, compressed. And, 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 it, and, and it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then that, I think that's about the best example I can use is because, you know, the, you know, it's kind of like Mario Draghi's, we stand ready to do whatever it takes and believe me, it will be enough. You know, and that was kind of the bottom of the Euro crisis. They didn't really do anything different than they'd been doing, but everybody believed them. It's kind of like a, it's like, it's like a, it's like a big bluff more than anything. Um, but if they can change behavior with their bluff, then it can kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, this leads me into the whole inflation versus deflation debate, which is kind of the other big um, debate out there right now. And the other big narrative is that the monetary authorities have finally conquered deflation. And this time, despite every year for the last 12 years, inflation expectations rising and then roll over, this time they really mean it. And this time they figured it out. And listen, maybe they have. Um, I don't think that they have. But this whole inflation-deflation debate, um, it, it frustrates some people because they will, to, to those in the deflation camp, which I would say I'm in the deflation camp, but I also feel like I could flip to the inflation pretty quickly. But those of us in the deflation camp, you know, people like me, people like Lacey Hunt, people like Steve Van Meter, people like Jeff Snyder, uh, Raul to a certain extent, um, you know, they will say, how can you not see the inflation? Just go to the grocery store. Everything's more expensive. Look at copper. Copper's up. Lumber's up. You know, corn is up. Everything's up. How can you say there's no inflation? And the point is, is that, uh, of course, we can, you know, if, if you define inflation, and this is another, it's important to define terms. Some people just say, if you expand the money supply, that's inflation. But in and that, that, that used to be the definition, but in more modern times, Inflation refers to a general rise in prices. So they'll say, how can you not see this general rise in prices? Okay, we can see it. It's obvious that there is a general rise in prices. It's not that we don't see it. It's the question is whether or not it's sustainable, right? Um, the, the way that you know that the general overriding economic force in the economy is inflationary or is deflationary is if the Fed is doing anything. In other words, if the Fed is doing QE and extreme monetary policies, 
then it means that the overriding economic force is deflation and they're trying to counteract it. They're not doing it just for the hell of it. They're trying to offset the deflation. So then the question becomes, can they win that battle? Can the Fed and can the monetary authorities do enough and stimulate enough that the, their powers can override the, the natural deflationary move in the market? And they, my point is they can do it for a while, but unless the new rather than just doing something more. In other words, if you do more of something that didn't work, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work this time. Just because you're spending more energy to do something that didn't work doesn't mean it will be successful. Now, if you come up with a new program that is different, that could potentially turn the tide and get some inflation. But so far for the last, you know, let's just use 12 years as an example in the United States, it's longer than that in Japan and other places. Um, but QE just doesn't quite work the way most people think it does. Most people think that the Fed, uh, the Treasury issues bonds, the banks buy them, then the Fed comes in, buys the bonds from the banks, the banks get the cash, and then they go buy stocks with the cash. And, you know, technically that's not correct, but that's the money printer go burr theme. Um, and because it's happening and because people think that that's inflationary, then they go change their behavior and they go buy stocks. Again, it can push prices higher. I'm not saying it can't. But the fact is, is that because QE doesn't actually work that way, and because banks aren't actually technically getting cash that they can then go buy stocks with, it eventually will roll over again. And the, the, the reason, I know I'm rambling here for a while, but I think this is important. The reason is because there's two different types of debt. And one of them is inflationary and the other one is deflationary. And what about, okay, so there's securitized debt and there's bank debt. Securitized debt is when IBM goes out and says, you know what, we need $10 million or $10 billion, so we're going to issue this bond. And so they exchange the bond. They give the bond to the public. The public gives them cash. The cash that IBM gets is cash that already existed. It's already in the system, and they're just trading one for the other. Same thing with the U.S. Treasury. When the treasury issues bonds, the public is giving them cash that already exists in the system. And then the public you know, gets the bonds. So it's a redistribution of money that already exists. But bank debt, if, a, if, if IBM goes down and borrows money from bank rather than selling a bond and the, and the bank gives them a billion dollars, that's a new money that's created. And that if, if that takes place over and over and over again, and the, as a result, the money supply doesn't just, you know, doesn't just redistribute, but actually grows, now you've got more money in the system. Now you can actually have some inflationary pressures. And if that is sustainable and it keeps going, then you can get velocity of money pickup. Um, and that is what leads to inflation. But so far, that's not what's happened. Um, if you look at bank debt over the last several years, it's stagnant. Um, there's this theme right now that money is so easy to get that you can just go out and just borrow all this money. But the fact is lending standards are tighter now than they were at the height of the crisis in 2008. So this theme that the, the world is just a wash in liquidity and there's no problem to get money, it's, it, it's just not correct, at least not from a bank debt perspective and an inflationary perspective. There may be ways to redistribute money between entities, 
But as far as creating new money and getting new money into the system and having the supply of money actually grow, uh, it's just not the case. Now, one thing that did happen last year that had not happened before um, is the government guaranteed loans. And so the banks did make loans to individuals and businesses last year, these PPP loans. But the only reason the banks made these loans was because the government guaranteed them. Without those guarantees, the loans wouldn't have been made. So if you go and you look um, at the bank lending from last year, you'll see this big spike in bank lending. So if you just look at a year over year, say, holy cow, the banks are lending inflations here. Well, that's fine. If you just look at it on a year by year, that's true. But if you actually go and you look at the details, what you'll see is that there was a spike of lending in May, uh, April and May. But then from June through the end of the year, it fell every month because it was just a one-time thing. And so the deflationists, we see that inflationary impulse, that one-time impulse, and that has ripples through the and it could push prices higher. But unless it keeps happening over and over and over again, it will eventually roll over and you will have another event like March of last year, or you will have an event like um, uh, December of 2018, or you'll have an event like 2009 or whatever it is. And the, the, the point is, is that uh, there's so much debt in the world that debt is deflationary because more money has to go to service the debt rather than going to productive um, enterprises. And so my belief is that this, this inflation is here theme is dramatically overplayed. I don't think it's here to stay. I think we will probably have another rollover. But if I see that the banks start actually lending, if new money actually gets into the system, and stays in the system, and that continues, then I will have to change my view and I'll have to adjust. That was a long ramble, but I hope it made sense. Yeah, so that's great. And, and um, I wanna bring some outside questions here in a minute, but there's no way we're gonna just jump to that after that diatribe. So, <laughs> because there's there's some important stuff to unpack there and, and, and a question I wanna throw back at you on. Yep. And, um, so to kind of summarize, and I think one of the most interest, interesting charts I like to look at is the you know commercial bank lending, and and that yeah. really sums up exactly what you're talking about here, which is if if the credit is not if the credit system's not expanding, it's contracting, and and that's really the, the deflationary force and right. QE and all this other type of stuff. It's not creating credit growth, and right. and that's really the the core of it. And again, there's there's other you you did that interview with Steve and. There's other stuff out there where people want to deep dive. I encourage that they do, but QE does not enter the system directly. It, it's, it's a reserve on the bank's balance sheet that they can therefore lend against. The problem is they're not lending. They're scared. They don't want to put their ass out there and get torched again. And they've been like this since 2008. Yep. And they're getting more or less rewarded for having those reserves just sit on the central bank balance sheet anyway. So why take the risk? Now, what's interesting though, you know, you mentioned something. Um, that I hadn't really leaned into, but I think a, a central bank digital currency can ultimately really change that dynamic because then they can send money directly to people, the true helicopter money. And if anything, the PPP loans, which were actual new money, like you're saying, inflationary credit, the banks created credit, handed it out to businesses, and then the Fed said, oh, we forgive it. That's, that's real money printer goes burr using yeah. the current 
uh, infrastructure that's in place. And I don't know what interview it was, what conversation, where it came across it, but someone made an interesting point, and it might have been the, the chat you had with Stephen, where the conversation or the point that was made is that the Fed isn't trying to fight, fight deflation. The Fed is actually scared to death of inflation. And they're creating this kind of false narrative that, you know, they're trying to create it when really they're scared to death of it. And I almost start to believe that wholeheartedly. And I'm like you and like most people, I think, in finance don't have much love for central bankers. But if they really, really wanted to create inflation, and I don't think they need a digital currency to do it, all you need to do is go buck wild with PPP loans and just keep forgiving them. To your point, if this velocity of credit was a perpetual thing, which it easily could be given, and, and maybe they're trying to make themselves feel like they're mad scientists and they're not just doing PPP helicopter money because you can see the social strain and, and um, just the tensions it's creating and the, and the classism that's, that's in the division that's being established. Maybe, maybe that's the reason why they're not going full bore on the throttle. And maybe that's waiting why they're waiting for there to be better on ramps so everybody can get, you know, their stimmy check. Right. But it seems to me if they really wanted inflation and really wanted to kickstart things, there wouldn't even be a conversation. They just do another PPP round and everyone would get five times as much as they did before. Well, so there, there's a couple of parts of that. First of all, you're not, you're not wrong. If, if, if they were to make these PPP loans a permanent facility, right? Um, that would likely be inflationary. Again, I, I, I'm not going to say for sure because I would have to see all the details of it, but that would be something that would make me definitely have to sit here and question whether or not inflation was going to take over, right? Um, I did a good interview with Russell Napier uh, last November. Um, and for people who haven't heard Russell Napier, I would encourage you to listen because that, this, is, this is his thesis, is that, is that this cat is out of the bag now. And it's not, it's not just the Fed's decision. This is a combination of the Congress and the Fed working together. Because what there's, or, or the Treasury, sorry, the, the Treasury saying, sorry, passing a law which says we will guarantee the loans to the banks. And then the banks make the loans, right? And then if they go bad, then the government will make them whole. Um, and so, you know, the, if, if the government starts to do that, then you could have, and they skipped the banks and went right to the individuals with a digital currency, um, you, you, you could have some inflationary pressures. And I think the point that I would make, and Lacey Hunt has made this point, you know, Jeff Snyder's made this point, Steve's made this point, is that as the laws are currently written, and this, this actually gets pretty funny because it gets speak of the Fed. On the one hand, um, Powell goes on 60 Minutes and explains all the stuff that they're doing. And then the interviewer says, so you're printing money. And Powell says, yeah, we're printing money. But he's really not. But he wants you to think he is, right? Because then if you, if anytime he testifies before Congress, so in one hand, he's doing an interview on TV where he's not under oath, okay? But then whenever he testifies before Congress or whenever he's doing his uh, FOMC things, he always says, now remember, the Fed can't actually spend money. All we can do is lend. Those are the powers given to us by the Congress. So 
the reality is all they can do is lend money. And when you lend money, you make the problem bigger. You increase the size of the debt. And when you increase the size of the debt, more, more of the money that exists has to go to service the debt and to less productive enterprises. And so you'll get this thing where the debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it becomes so deflationary that the only tool left is to give the central bank the ability to spend. And once that happens, then that's when you get the not just inflation, but you get the hyperinflation because now all those liabilities are actually cash. And that's the point is like, you know, the Fed, the Fed is not handing out cash. They're handing out, they're handing out uh, their liabilities. But if those liabilities are now all of a sudden considered cash, well, then, you know, that's when you get just the, the runaway inflation. And, you know, it's almost like a ratchet. It gets more deflationary, more deflationary, more deflationary, more deflationary until the only tool left is to actually spend money rather than lend money. And then you get the boom, then you get the inflation. And I just don't think we're there yet. Now we might be, but I think we've. I think that uh, what will lead to these eventual policies that make the PPP loans permanent, or that will make uh, the the Fed liabilities cash, will be another deflationary event. Typically, you need some kind of a crisis to push through these what would be otherwise horrible, not horrible, but just uh, what's the right way to say it? Un, 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 unacceptable unacceptable, unethical, whatever you want to call it. You know, this that whole thing, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. You yep. can get stuff done during a crisis that you could never get done under normal circumstances. And so I think we need another one of those to push these, these new policies through. So one last thing before I let maybe someone chime in here and ask a question is, um, and, and this is not a crystal ball question. This is yep. really just, you know, maybe where do you think the next... <laughs> the dot is on the timeline. Yeah. Do you, cause I get your point here, right? We, we need another, we're not quite done. Right. And, yeah. and Tom, Tom Brady's got another Super Bowl yeah. or two. Yeah. He's got fingers yeah. still left on his one hand. He needs to put a ring yeah. on. Yeah. You see what's the next thing is it negative nominal rates in the U S is that kind of a, a another, are there, are there mountains we haven't climbed yet that you're like, you know, I, guess I, I, I think that my belief is that, Listen, they always say never put a, a timeline on your predictions, right? But I, I, while I think that over in the general sense, I think they can keep the plates spinning longer than most. I don't think that they can keep all the plates spinning forever. And so I think, let's say in the next six months, I think that we will have some kind of an event. And I think it will be in the euro dollar market that will cause it rather than. So we didn't really get a chance to talk about that, but there's basically two dollar markets. There's the there's the U.S. currency market within the domestic United States, and then there's the dollar market outside the United States. That's called the euro dollar market. So there's, there's this, all this dollar lending and dollar credit extension that takes place outside the United States. And that is a big problem. And so, you know, you've got European um, exposure to dollar debt. You've got uh, Middle East exposure to dollar debt. You've got Asian exposure to dollar debt. My guess is that sometime in the next months before, you know, Q1, Q2, Q3, before the end of the year, probably in the next six months, I think we will have some kind of a, a dollar issue outside the United States, whether that's in China or Hong Kong or Taiwan, or whether it's in Italy or Turkey, you know, I don't know which one flares up first, but I think we will have a dollar crisis in the euro dollar system. 
So I'm going to have to get Jeff on the podcast, Jeff Snyder, to, yeah. uh, you to dive, yeah. dive into that one. But um, I'm not going to let you get off the hook just yet with that point because what I, putting a timeline on anything is, is the last thing you want yeah. to do in your, in your business. So we understand that you're just kind of dangling at it. Um, what you're really saying is you expect the dollar to go higher in 2021 because that's really going to be the trigger. Yeah, I do. I do. And maybe it won't, but you know, I, I think it will. I think it will. I think it will because the, the, the most popular trade right now is the dollar going lower, commodities and emerging markets going higher. I think that the surprise will be that the dollar rallies this year. Awesome. Brent, I appreciate it. Let's see if we can, um, since we're testing boundaries here, let me see if I can bring somebody in with a question. We got Greg TC. Let's um, give him the opportunity to ask a question. Okay. This is all new to me. We'll see how it works. All right. So I just I gave him an invite to, to ask. So Greg, check your clubhouse chat. And I see we got Brendan, Roger, James, Nikhil. Brendan, I had a good chat with on clubhouse before. Brendan, you're welcome to chime in with a question if you have. Greg, I sent you an invite if you want to. Um, there we go. No problem. Go ahead, ask your question. I was just curious, uh, Brent, with um, you know, with the Dixie uh, strengthening, that you know, one of the reasons why is you know, just based on the other currencies uh, and not necessarily you know how many. You know, dollars are being technically printed. So when the strength of the dollar is rising, it's really rising versus, you know, Bank of England with their negative interest rates and, and their, you know, QE program in, in Japan and, and their QE program. So, you know, the old, the old saying, the, um, the clean shirt and, the, and, the, and a dirty hamburger kind of. So, um, but I think, you know, have you looked at how MMPC plays into your dollar real cheap theory? Yeah, so I think, uh, as a general sense, I think that if you look back to 2008, the 2008 crisis, the Fed came out and did QE bigger and faster and more loudly than anybody else. And when that happened, the dollar fell about you know eight to ten percent. But then the whole world ended up doing the same thing, and you know they had to do a lot of QE in Japan and Europe and stuff, and then. You know, after that dollar fell, that initial 10%, it actually started rising again. And I think we kind of have that similar thing again now. You know, from the high to where it is now, the dollar's fallen about 10%. Um, the Fed came out and did QE after last March, you know, kind of bigger, bolder, more aggressive and louder uh, than anybody else. Um, but, you know, as a result, you know, Japan's currency rallied 10%, Europe's currency rallied 10%. And those are exporting economies that, you know, it's hard for them to, to, to continue to do well with a strong currency. And now you're starting to see them push back a little bit. You know, Europe is starting to admit that they're going to have to do more. Bank of England's going to have to do more. Um, China's had to had some credit problems in the last couple of weeks. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the U.S. got out ahead of it, but uh, the rest of the world's going to have to pick up the slack. And I think the dollar is going to rise when people realize that the narrative that the money printer go burr means the dollar goes lower is not necessarily true. You know, and, and to add on top of that, the MMT thing, again, what we've talked about maybe in the last 20 minutes here, it's, it's really, how does that get into the system? Um, but in addition to that, and you've made this point multiple times, Brent, before, is what they're doing or even what they're proposing 
with MMT and even even Biden's $2 trillion stimulus, you've made the point that, and that's a drop in the bucket versus the, the liquidity that that's made it. You know, the dollar demand that's actually out there. Like maybe if they came out and, and this is kind of a Hugh Hendry thing in a lot of ways, you know, you know, start doing $30 trillion, then maybe yeah. we'll get some real inflation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I would just say is that with regard to Europe, you know, everybody thinks that talks about how Powell is just buying all the Fed's treasuries. Well, last year, the ECB bought 85% of all sovereign bonds issued in Europe. So think about that. Greg, good, good answer for you. I'm sorry, what was that? All right, man, appreciate you chiming in. Well, Brent, look, man, your time is valuable, and um, I'm grateful for you sharing it with us and sharing it with me. And um, always a pleasure to connect with you, and thank you for coming on to the podcast and being my first repeat guest. Happy to do it. I appreciate you having me, and I look forward to doing it again. We won't won't have to – let's not wait a year again this time. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Hopefully we can maybe do a sit-down in person before before the year. That'd be nice. Brent, it's, it's, uh, I think everybody knows where to find you, but why not plug that one last time? All right. Well, you know, you can email me, Brent at SantiagoCapital.com. Uh, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Santiago AU Fund is the handle. But I think if you just Google Santiago Capital Twitter, uh, you'll get that as well. Um, and then just uh, check out uh, John's podcast and uh, happy, to, happy to connect with if, if we get the chance. Again, man, thank you so much. So everyone on uh, Clubhouse, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Thanks for joining. That was a fun experiment. And and again, Brent, thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Yeah, awesome, man. That was fun. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it. I'm done.